This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, the Google Play Store, or on the Podbean app. You can find more Thanks for Sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash healingpaths. That's paths with an S. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm Jackie P. I'm John T. Today on our show, we have a returning guest that we've had before, our friend and colleague, Rob Weiss. Welcome, Rob. Hey, guys. And we've had you on before talking about several of your books because you have several books, but you've got another one out that recently was released. I did. It's number 10. It's book number 10. Which is awesome. And this one is written, it's called Prodependence. Is that what it's called? Codependence, moving beyond codependence. Yes. Okay. Nice. Yeah, and I, John and I have been discussing this. I think we talked about, I think one of the episodes we recorded last year at SASH, you were talking about mm-hmm. this book coming out, mm-hmm. or that it was in the works. Um, and we talked about what a great idea that is to really talk about relationships more from a pro-dependence viewpoint than the codependent viewpoint. So mm-hmm. welcome. We're glad to have you. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful to be here. I, I just want to acknowledge, and guys, whoever's listening, like these two folks really care, and their work is really important. So I hope that you're able to share it with other people and make use of it, because not everyone is pouring their heart and soul into helping others like these guys are. So I just wanted to say that for me. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Rob. Rob. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how this this uh, this book came to be? What made you write it? Sure. Um, so I've been, I've, I've been in, I've worked as a professional in the addiction field for 25 years, and I have been in the addiction field in, in my personal life for almost 35. So half of my, most all of my adult life has been spent in the addiction world. And, you know, whether it's been as a recovering person or as later as a therapist, I've seen so many different approaches and models for the treatment of addiction. You know, I've seen us work with 12-step. I've seen us work with non-12-step. I've seen us work with medication. I've seen us work with really get to the point where when we're working with an addict, whatever gets them sober is the path we're going to take. As long as it's not what we're interested in using, but what gets them sober. And we'll worry about how we got them there later. And so what has disappointed me, however, is that I have, when it comes to the treatment of the partners, spouses, and loved ones of addicts, We have no new models for the treatment. We have the same model that we've had for the last 35 years, and that is a model of codependency. The problem with codependency is that it became a pop culture phenomenon in the 1980s, and the meaning that codependency had to the people who wrote about it in the 1980s, the people who wrote the first books, has been lost to most therapists. Most of the work that you guys, that we do with Partners of Addicts, if we call it codependency treatment is, well, let me try it this way. There've been 340 books written with the word codependency in the title mm. since the first books came out. Which one do you do? Do you do, do book number 327? The reason that this has happened is because we've never had a diagnosis for codependency. It's never been acknowledged by any of our clinical journals. It's never really been much more than a pop culture phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't diagnose someone as having codependency, as being codependent. It doesn't exist. It's right. never been acknowledged. So, and by the way, we we already have diagnoses for people who are overly dependent and have dependency problems. Mm-hmm. So, I, I wanted to, to try to take a completely fresh sheet of paper and say, 
If we look at what most benefits partners and spouses and loved ones of addicts today in the 21st century, um, what is most appealing to them, what is most loving and invitational to them? Um, and I came up with a model that is more based on attachment theory and attachment, which is sort of how uh, the part of human relationships where we look at connections and intimacy. And I decided that I just never liked a lot of the stuff that came out of codependency. Codependency basically says that if you partner with an addict, there's probably something wrong with you. Yeah. And because there is some inherent brokenness in you that made you partner with their brokenness in them. And then when their brokenness starts to become acute, like they start drinking alcoholically or they start sexual acting out or whatever it is that you will turn your own trauma is going to show up and you're going to start as a partner and a spouse acting out stuff from your past, which is going to negatively affect the addictive process. And in other words, your own desperation and fear that comes out of your past as a partner is going to affect and negatively affect this person's ability to recover from addiction. Mm -hmm. Codependency says that you as a partner need to look at yourself, look at your past, look at your history, and in essence, see how you're contributing to this problem of addiction. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, that means the spouse is screwed before they even start. There's an assumption right. that the spouse is partially at fault, that they're doing something wrong, that they're contributing to the drinking or the using or the sexing or whatever. And spouses universally hate this. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I see spouses as saying things like, look, maybe I gained 30 pounds. Maybe I'm working three jobs. Maybe I don't take care of myself anymore. Maybe I'm not spending time with any of my friends. But the person I love is failing. Right. They're not working. Not able, and I have to have kids to take care of and a family. And so if I do whatever I need to do to rescue, take care of, enable, whatever I do to take care of this family and try to keep it together, how can you say that that comes out of anything but love? Right. Mm -hmm. And how can you blame me for now the problems that are and happening? Therapists, by even the whole concept of codependence, even the idea that there might be something wrong with me in my past that maybe be attracted to you, that may be true. Right. And I may be acting out some of my past issues in this crisis. That also may be true because people regress in a crisis and they act out their stuff. Mm -hmm. But this is not the time to talk to a partner about their problem. They already have a problem. They have an active addict in their life and a family yes. that's falling apart and they're exhausted and overwhelmed. Yes. So, so from a pro-dependent perspective, I say, let's say to the partner, God, what a great job you've done of trying to help this family. And, you know, I bet if you had grown up with lessons in how to treat alcoholics, you probably could have stopped him from drinking too. But nobody taught us in high school how to help a loved one to stop using. And so we just do the best we can. Mm -hmm. And if we don't do it perfectly, that's not a reflection of our brokenness. Mm -hmm. It's a reflection of our desperation to try to heal the person we love. Yeah. Right. I, I kind of, um, when you had just briefly a year ago mentioned to us pro-dependency and what it was about, um, I've been thinking a lot about it the last year. And so I've been really excited that this book is finally published and I can put it on my, my reading list. Um, one of the things I've thought about is in addiction treatment, we have really worked on this like dialoguing with the addict and finding out like what's the purpose that the addict serves in your life. And I often have a conversation with my, with my addicted clients that starts with, of course you developed this because, and then we look for something. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I love this. It's almost, it's, it's analogous but, to that. That's of course. You're being, I, I want to say something about that, what you just said. Mm-hmm. There is an assumption within codependency that partners are addicts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that well, we they need, used to call them co-addicts. 
co-addicts, codependents, means that mm -hmm. we need, so with an, what do we do in treatment of an addict? We, we figure out what they've been doing. We confront their distortions and their denial, their denial. Like, how come you look at the world this way, but everyone else looks at your behavior and looks at it this way? Something's not right about that. Mm -hmm. And then we try to contain and confront the problem behaviors and put them in a box and figure out where they came from. That's addiction treatment. Mm -hmm. But partners are just in a crisis. Mm -hmm. yeah. They're in grief. Like their whole world has fallen apart. It right. doesn't matter why or how or, or the meaning of any of the things they're doing. They right. just need support in trying to keep their family together and keep their own mental health and emotional yeah. health. They're and most, most people don't perform well consistently over time in crisis mode. Well, actually, therapy can't take place when people are in crisis. You know, I really... Right. this. Uh, you can call me Dr. Rob now, by the way, if you guys want to. Oh, oh nice. yeah. And when, I when got did, my doc. When did that become official, by the way? This week. Oh, And my doctor is based on codependence. I did the research, and I researched therapists' beliefs about codependency and the treatment they were doing, and, you know, really began to understand that. I, with all due respect, I, I think every therapist just kind of makes up what they do with partners because mm -hmm. they, a lot of people don't like codependency as it was written in the 80s but they want a softer, easier version, but they don't have a name for it. Mm -hmm. So they just kind of do whatever they feel right to them, or they try to do them what they were taught, but it doesn't feel right to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've, I've talked with many partners and I've said, you know, I, I mean, when we're, when we work with couples and we're doing the, really the repair work, there's a lot of things we talk about having, giving your partner generous assumptions um, looking at your partner through a, or a positive lens versus a negative and realizing they have bad days, they go through difficult times, that's not necessarily who they are as a partner. Um, but you, with an addiction, right, all of those things that we want you to do in a relationship work against you and would look like codependent behaviors, if mm -hmm. we're going to say that, when really those are healthy relationship skills. Mm -hmm. If we're not in an addictive There's, relationship, if if you if I if I love you and look if I have if I love you and you're the mother of my two kids and I have and you have cancer, you know I'm going to do all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to mm -hmm. probably be up at three in the morning, you know, turning circles trying to make the tea bag. I, I don't know. I'm just going to be a crazy mm -hmm. person. Right. And you would come and bring me casserole and say, well, of course you're going to be up at three in the morning, and of course mm -hmm. the woman you love is not well and she may not make it and. But if my wife of 15 years and I have three kids with her is on her third opioid treatment and she won't stop going to different doctors and now she started drinking, you know, you're going to tell me, well, maybe you need to detach. Maybe you need to step back. Maybe mm -hmm. you're, you know, maybe you're part of this problem. And that's just not fair. Mm -hmm. We have been blaming caregivers since time immemorial because they take a female role. And mm -hmm. we don't value female roles, traditional female roles of caregiving as it is. Mm -hmm. So... You know, there are lots of reasons why codependency came about. There are lots of cultural reasons why it was validated at the time in the 1980s. It just doesn't make sense anymore. And no one, I don't think, has really just come along and said, well, wait a minute, why don't we try all over again with something new? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit uh, specifics about what came out in the research you did on codependence, what therapists think about that? Like, let's talk about that. Um, well, uh, interestingly, so I, I asked therapists, I interviewed about 65 addiction professionals, and I said to them, do you believe that a partner of an addict is coming to you in a crisis? Do you believe that if they're coming to you because they want help, most of the time they're in a crisis? 
92% of therapists said that they believe the partners of addicts, of all addicts, were coming to them in a crisis. So I just immediately stopped there and I looked at crisis counseling. Like I went and looked it up. And crisis counseling, when someone is in a crisis and an acute fear about the health and well-being of their life, it is not the time to do anything exploratory. Yep. When someone has gone through an earthquake or, or their father just died, or you don't talk to them about uh, exploratory things. You try to secure their well-being. You give them hope. You encourage them. You validate them. These are the things we do with people in a crisis. Mm-hmm. So I watched therapists, 92% of whom, these are all addiction professionals, tell me that they absolutely believe that partners were in a crisis when they came into their office. And then when I went on to ask them interview questions about how they did their work, 80% of them said they did deeply exploratory questions in the early stages of treatment about that person's family life. 75% of them said they did deep exploratory questioning about how that person and the addict, their spouse or mate, how they got along and how their life had gone. Mm -hmm. All of those questions to me, if I was a partner, would immediately lead to, you're asking me what how I've contributed to this problem. Mm -hmm. You're asking me what my part is. Simply by asking me about my past or my relationship with him or her, you're implying that I must be a part of this problem. And, And if you're a woman, women are holistic thinkers. You're already thinking, what did I do to make this happen? What is my fault? How can I make this better? And here's the deal. You know, I, what, Jackie, I hate this. How many women, uh, every single week I'm online with people and in the rooms or in, at uh, Sex and Relationship Healing, and a woman will say to me, so I just don't want him to act out again. What, what, what can I do? What, what will I do that will cause him to drink again? What will I do that will cause him to use again? What will I, and, they, and I can't say it enough times, there is nothing zero nothing that any partner can do to make somebody drink or use or act out sexually it just isn't going to happen you can be mean to me you can hate me you can avoid me you can and i can divorce you i can find friends to hang out with i can buy a car i can go play golf i can there are many decisions i can make if i'm unhappy in my relationship other than drinking using or acting out now as an addict i will blame you that's right. a part of gaslighting. I will say it's your fault. I'm miserable in my relationship. I drink because of you. I use because of you. I want to put all the responsibility elsewhere because I just want to drink or use or act out. But, but the reality is that a partner has no responsibility mm-hmm. for that behavior. Yeah. But they feel like they do. And then yeah. they come into therapy and we make them feel worse about it. Well, and, and often I think our society reinforces that message for females, right? That tells us we have power where we have none. Mm-hmm. Um, tells us that we have control over things like other people's thoughts based on how we dress, mm-hmm. um, which just isn't like, I, I think, but we grow up with those messages thinking that we have some degree of control where the reality is we don't. And in terms of our brains, you know, men are more able to objectify and detach. So a man is much more able to say, you know, I didn't have anything to do with that. Our brains mm-hmm. kind of work that way. We can separate. Mm-hmm. That's a relationship. This is a problem. I'm not. Re-. Women will tend to, because of how women will be more holistic and think, well, where is my part in this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, when you take these factors, right? Number one, a woman is naturally going to maybe look for where her relationship piece is in all of this, the holistic piece. And then when I think about the grief that comes when someone is actively using or addictive, when I'm grieving, I feel remorse. When my dog died, I thought, oh, I wish I'd walked him more. I wish I'd played with him. You know, when my dad Mm -hmm. died, I thought I wish we had. Remorse is a part of grief. Mm -hmm. If you are losing your spouse to addiction, you are in grief and remorse. If someone says to you, did you do this? Did you do that? Are you doing this? 
you're already feeding into that feeling that they have that, oh gosh, if I just done it this way, they wouldn't have ended up in a hospital for drinking, you know? Mm -hmm. So I want to do everything to take any sense in a partner that they've done anything wrong and simply see them as having come from love, trying to help a family member or that they care about. And any craziness that they may have exhibited is the craziness of what happens when someone you love is failing. Mm -hmm. And no matter what you do, no matter how much you love them or how hard you try, you can't seem to pull them back. And the answer to that is, by the way, you just need help pulling them back. You know, mm -hmm. if a partner came into my office, I would say, you did such an amazing job of loving pro-dependently. You gave everything you had. But, you know, who knows, who, who taught you how to love an alcoholic? Let me teach you or let's work together to make your love more effective, more productive, mm -hmm. more, um, uh, uh, more uh, problem solving. Yeah. One of the messages of the 1980s I'm not a fan of um, was a book by Robin Norwood called Women Who Love Too Much. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. This was a part of that whole movement of anti-dependency that women had in the 1980s. And I read about it in Codependence, where why codependency became such a phenomenon at the time, and there are culture, cultural reasons why it did, they no longer really apply in the women's movement that we're experiencing today, mm. um, uh, I don't think. And women are looking more for affirmations of their strengths of compassion and empathy and connection rather than wanting to distance themselves as they did in the 70s and say, I can be like a man and I don't need anybody else. Right. There's a, anyway, so um, it's hard for me to separate out codependency movement and feminism because they're very deeply tied together. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand that 95% of all self-help books are bought by women. And so those 12 million copies of Codependent No More that were published into 16 languages, they were all sold to women. Hmm. And then those other 340 books about codependency, those were all sold to women too. And what do they do? They, in essence, pathologize caregiving. Mm -hmm. and, right. and the sad part for me is that women are willing to buy into that. That's what pisses me off. Yeah. Yeah, we could talk a whole lot about that because that pisses me off too. <laughs> <laughs> Then you read the book. Then you read oh, the book. Yes, I will. I will read the book. I have, yes. I've been reading a lot of books that related to that more so in the last two years. So I'm, I'm wondering, Rob, if your research kind of covered like how the healing actually starts happening or what's the better way to take for partners? Well, you know, um, I'm at the stage of writing out an idea. And just to say, protopendence is not a word that existed in the language before I I mean, before I thought of it, I looked it up. Um, I actually trademarked the word um, because I didn't want what happened to codependency to happen here. Like if I really did have an idea that was useful, I didn't want 400 other people to take it on and write about their version of it because mm -hmm. then it all becomes very distilled. Yeah. No, it becomes very diffuse, right? Right. Yeah. It becomes um, to where we talk about codependency so much we don't really even know what it is what it anymore. Well, and, you know, I feel bad for Melody Beatty. You know, I don't mm -hmm. agree with her theories, but before she was done, 300 people had taken that, and, you know, who most of us wouldn't even know where that word came from or who wrote it. And, mm -hmm. and I think the person who came up with the idea deserves credit for it, and it was pretty clever. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I like the word co-addiction better, to be honest with you. Co-addiction, just to say it, comes from Claudia Black. Mm -hmm. And Claudia Black had this idea, which I like, that the partner might be addicted to the addict's using Mm -hmm. So I'm addicted to alcohol too. It, it's just that I'm addicted to counting it, looking at it, figuring it out. Where you know I'm obsessed with his drinking. Right. Right. I could get, I could get by with that. I, yeah. I, I don't think a partner of an alcoholic would have a problem saying I'm kind of obsessed with his drinking. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you be? His drinking is ruining your life. You know. Yeah. yeah. But 
when it moved to, I'm addicted to him, I'm addicted right. to her, I'm addicted to mm -hmm. my family member, that yeah. pathologizes love and attachment. Yeah. That mm -hmm. says that there's something wrong with me. And I know a lot of people are really screwed up around love attachment, the ways that they go about trying to attach, not healthy. Mm -hmm. But yeah. their desire to attach, their need to attach, so healthy. Mm -hmm. And addicts in particular will throw, throw out their needfulness. They'll say, oh, well, I just don't need or want anybody. I need to do this on my mm -hmm. own. We need people desperately. Yes. And we need no one more than the people they love the most. And so why would you counsel a partner to detach, to distance, to... There are other ways to get them to engage in self-care. Right. Becoming um, needless and wantless is not an end goal. Yeah. For well, but in the 80s, you have to, and you young people must understand, that self-actualization was a huge deal. Yeah. And the whole 80s movement of Est and Lifespring and Insight and all of those personal development workshops and the whole sort of humanistic movement of the 1980s was about people, individuals, fully self-actualizing and becoming everything they can be. Mm -hmm. women love this because of course women wanted to actualize and be everything they could be without depending on men mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the problem is is that self-actualization as a goal doesn't achieve our best vision for humanity because we're really best when our goal is connection yeah. not that i'm the best i can be but that i get best i can be connected to you right mm -hmm. and so just like in the trauma field I think it's a great metaphor for those therapy folks. When we first discovered trauma in the 80s and the 90s, and that it wasn't just Vietnam vets, but actually our, we had survivors of early childhood issues, everything in treatment centers became trauma, trauma, trauma. Mm -hmm. We worked on trauma. We had people beating beds with bataka bats. We had people screaming and yelling and throwing things. And we thought that if we just got them to work through that trauma or identify that trauma or deal with that trauma, that their problems would somehow magically go away and they'd go back out in the world and they'd be fine. Mm -hmm. Well, we have had to adjust that and say, you know what, um, um, we can work with trauma, but we also need to contain it. We also need to yeah. help the person be functional. We also need to help them walk and talk and chew gum. We can't just break a person apart, look at their deepest emotional problems, and then send them out in the world and think they'll be fixed. Mm -hmm. yeah. Learn that lesson. So now I think we need to learn the lesson that pure self-actualization for the purpose of the individual becoming their best self is not a primary goal of psychotherapy, a primary goal of psychotherapy, especially in the addictions, is people is teaching people that whoever they are, wherever they're at, actualized or not, their primary goal is to connect with other people. Mm -hmm. And that the better the quality of their connections, the better quality of their relationships, the healthier they will be and the more actualized yeah. they will be. Mm -hmm. In order to do that, you have to push codependency aside. Mm -hmm. So do you or are you expecting pushback? Because, I mean, you're... This whole idea is pushing against some very... It's very entrenched. Yeah, very entrenched in our systems, in, in all... Like, I mean, this is going to challenge a lot of the ways of thinking and the way that power is held. Well, a couple of things. I wrote in the book, uh, I quoted, uh, and this is really kind of narcissistic. No, that's not the word. Arrogant, perhaps. But I quoted Charles Darwin when I opened the book. Mm. because I when he wrote Origin of a Species, he talked about how people were not going to accept new theories and new theories were going to be, and they need to be proven over time and they were going to evolve and all of that. But he said to not put them forward is to, you know, to, to miss an opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know that there are people who are going to like these ideas, but I have to tell you, I actually think they're great. I really do believe that the greater response is and has been positive because mm -hmm. I was in Atlanta last weekend and I gave my first pro-dependence talk 
and about 175 therapists. I didn't know any of them. This is a completely out of the, they didn't know me. Um, I just gave the talk and we sold every book in the room. We sold about 50 books, 175 therapists, we sold every book. But more than that, I mean, it's nice that we sold books, but people came up to me and they said this, they said, you said and explained what I've been thinking for years. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's not going to be, when I explained what codependency really was meant to be in the way it was laid out in the mm -hmm. 1980s, not the hundreds of versions that people are doing yeah. now, you know, then they understand that this is what this model is and they can either embrace it or they need to find something else. Uh -huh. But we need to have clarity about what we as a field are offering to people. And right. we need to say, these are the models that are available and this is the one that I've chosen to work with. We only have one choice with codependency mm -hmm. and I'm bringing another that people seem to feel good about. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad to hear that because I think those messages, I, I hope we're at a time where people are going, the majority of the people are going to be receptive to some of those um, entrenched messages being challenged and being mm -hmm. shook up. Well, look, you know, any therapist, how many of you, well, how many times have either of you heard, and I know you have, you know, that partner's so difficult, I think they're sicker than the addict, uh, they just mm -hmm. won't own, they just won't own their own part, mm -hmm. they just won't look at their, you know, and I just, and then the, it, we start doing this at a whole mm -hmm. population, saying they're just difficult to treat. And I think, well, what if the problem is not that they're difficult to treat, but the treatment we offer them immediately puts them on a defensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, and then they have to, but they have to accept that because we're the leaders, we're the, you know, and then they do stuff like, well, you know what, just get him well or her well and I'll come back. Well, you know, then they say, I don't want to be a part of this because I'm already overwhelmed and I'm mm -hmm. in a crisis and you're escalating my fears and my anxiety with the, with this model. Mm -hmm. And so they opt out of treatment altogether and that's really hurtful. Yeah. yeah. So if, if the ultimate aim of codependency is more like counter-dependency, what's the ultimate aim of pro-dependency? Like where, where does that get an Interdependency, aim? right? Mm -hmm. Interdependency. The whole idea. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote a chapter in the last, the last chapter in the book is called Why, um, Twos Don't Marry Sevens. Mm -hmm. And it's, a, it's about a, this idea that, you know, we all want the perfect partner, but we tend to find people who are kind of at our same level of emotional mm -hmm. development and intellectual development for the most part. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then when they start showing their stuff, we want to run away, we want to blame, you know. And I just think that we have such opportunities. I guess what I want to, let me try it this way. I work with a lot of women online, and you guys know who I'm talking about, who say, you know, I'm 35 years old, I'm 42 years old, and I've dated so many losers, mm -hmm. so many alcoholics, so many, I, I just never wanted, and I'm such a codependent and all that stuff. And what I think is, you know, um, maybe we just need to work with them to learn how to date better and mm -hmm. how to choose better partners. And if you're in that, and I had a woman on the phone yesterday, I swear to God, she was supposed to be interviewing me, but she's actually talking about herself. It's fine. <laughs> But she said, you know, I just don't know how to date because they're all broken, they're all losers, they're all alcohol, you know, and I just said, well, and here's my point. If you have some issues, you're going to find someone with issues. Mm -hmm. right. but, but make sure that that person is sober if they've had a problem with alcohol. Make sure yeah. that if they had emotional problems, they spent a few years in therapy. So if you're not going to find the perfect person, you're going to find someone like you who has brokenness like you. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. To me, if I'm a two and my partner's a four, maybe together we can become a six, you know, mm -hmm. like we can grow together. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's not about finding the perfect partner, but the good enough partner. Right. Um, and that means that they have looked at their brokenness. They know what it is and they can talk about it. And that is who I would want to be with today. Not the person who's perfect, but the person who can own their part. 
Yes, absolutely. And I, I tell people, now that you're learning the language of therapy, you'll pick up on those who use that language. People who are in the club. Yeah. And yeah. and they come back in and they're like, oh my gosh, they use this word. I know that word. Like You're like, yeah, yeah. People will use what they learn. And if you just listen to them, you'll you'll see. Yeah. I, I really like that view because I think it takes the I think it takes the focus off of who's more broken or who's got the brokenness. And it's more like what are the raw materials we have to build a culture yeah. that may work beautifully for both of us. Uh -huh. And that is very much the Gottman's work. Mm -hmm. yeah. by the way. Um, it's all about interdependence and about let's use your strengths here where I'm vulnerable and let me stand up when you're vulnerable rather mm -hmm. than we both have to have it together all the time, which is not, which again would be very self-actualized, right? Mm -hmm. We're both, all, you know, rather than we lean, this whole idea of leaning into each other and leaning on each other. And, you know, this is a very feminine concept. Mm -hmm. Men don't like this. Women who, who want strong feminists don't like that concept. They want to be individual. They want to be strong. They want to stand up on their own. I don't think that's necessarily embracing feminism. I think embracing real feminism is fully embracing your femininity and mm -hmm. all of the wonderful things that it means to be a woman, mm -hmm. not trying to be more like a man. Right. And mm -hmm. I think that lesson was learned in the last round of feminism. Yeah. Um, I think we're seeing women coming together in Me Too and supporting each other in more nurturing and supportive ways. That's probably a better method for women. Now we need to stop blaming them for their strengths of caregiving and nurturing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and allowing for women to be strong or to speak up and to have a strong voice yes. when they feel it, but they don't have to live there all the time. And not pathologizing them for being hurt, angry, disappointed when someone who they love has hurt, angered, and disappointed them. Right. Well, why are you always nagging and blaming him? Because he's ruined my life. <laughs> yeah. It's okay to nag and blame someone who's ruined your life. Now let's yes. find a different way for you to say that. You know? right. yeah. so, so at the risk of... of um, turning this talk about feminism into like, well, <laughs> and need that too. But I, I also think from a male perspective, we have to take the, these are purely feminine traits, loving, caretaking. We have to take that, this is purely feminine out of that. Because I think a lot of men who want to caretake, like I've worked with plenty of male partners who have really reached out in the best way that they know how to love their partner. And they're asked all the time, why are you staying? Like you, you could have something so much better. And a lot of times they have a hard time owning. I love this person. I want to take care of this person. We, we have something that I love together. You're right. And, and let me be correct. Let me correct. Um, there are traits that are caregiving traits in particular, but compassion, empathy, community building, relationship building. They're seen as traditionally feminine traits mm -hmm. and therefore they get undervalued. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When men, start stepping aside look at it this way doctors were really well-paid profession for a very long time now they're increasingly more women doctors and guess what pay is going down yeah i'm not saying there's anything i'm just saying it seems to be when women get embraced for their caregiving they don't get the credit when yeah. guys embrace for their caregiving they either need to be a rock star or surgeon mm -hmm. or you know it, it, we need to break down those barriers and men yeah. need to be able to embrace their nurturing listen you know one of the things that's hardest for guys i think when they're sober is their needfulness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, in sex and relationship addiction, people say, do we have withdrawal? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Withdrawal looks like I'm lonely all the time. I'm longing all the time. I, I, you know, it's this deep feeling of disconnection. And when I work with male addicts, they say things like, I hate my needfulness. I hate my addict. I hate my neediness. I hate, and don't they realize like that is the voice that's calling them for attention. Right. Yeah. Pay attention to how needful you really are. That is our humanness. No, right. I 
And I'm, I'm glad you're bringing that up. I find myself doing a lot of reframing with my clients when they are longing for relationships. And they say, that's just my codependency crap. And it's like, no, it's no. not. This, yeah. is your, this is your humanness. You're reaching right. for connection. Yeah. Well, but you have to understand for so many of the people we work with, they had so many needs as children that were never met. Mm -hmm. And so the feeling of simply being needful without knowing if that met, need will go met or get met or not is terrifying. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult for those of us who grew up not knowing if we were going to be picked up or held or comforted or to sit in need as adults with nobody there. It's much easier to take control. And that's really what addiction is. It's about taking control over my needs. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to need people. I, I don't need to be nurtured. I don't need to be comforted. I, don't need to be, I will just go take care of it myself. Mm. Um, that's also seen as a very male trait, to go off by myself and take care of the problem. Yeah. It's not helpful for men to look at it that way. Right. Yeah. Or that, that men take care of others' needs. They don't have them, but they are meeting others' needs. Yeah, we don't have needs. We take care of others' needs. Right. I don't get worried about dating. I, it's the woman who gets worried about whether she's going to get the phone call. But I have to tell you, when, I, when and you guys know this, you know this so well, when you take some arrogant, difficult male sex addict who's just been using people right and left, and you get him into recovery about a year, and then you start him dating, he becomes, and excuse my language, a 12-year-old young female yeah. call. she hasn't called yeah. and they hate that they hate mm -hmm. should i call her now i we went on the stage should i get back you know they're so needful and that's the mm -hmm. part of them that they have just wanted to push away so strongly yeah and it's mm -hmm. the part they most need to embrace Absolutely. right which is that vulnerable part of us that says i'm not i'm not an island i can't do this all by myself i am wired for connection well but unfortunately for some of us it tugs at our sleeve like I need to go have sex. I want to yes. go have a drink. Yes. And we have to work hard enough to recognize that that noise in our head that says, go drink, go use, go sex, is really the voice of, I'm lonely, I yeah. need, uh -huh. need comfort. Yeah. And when you get to that point of recovery, you know, we say that the disease never goes away. You still may hear that voice says, I'm having a bad day. I want to go see a prostitute. But listen to the part that says, I'm having a bad day and do something about that, mm -hmm. not go see the prostitute. Mm -hmm. And say, maybe I need some connection. Right? I might need to talk to somebody because I've had a horrible yes. day. Yeah. And I, and I, Go ahead. I was going to say, I, I do think that that vulnerability and that needfulness is, it's always going to be vulnerable, but instead of pathologizing that, we need to celebrate it. I, mm -hmm. I think that's what opens us up to this really deep connection that heals and empowers and grows souls from the ground up. So now you, now you can talk about, now we know about narcissism. You know, because narcissism is the ultimately needful, per needful person who doesn't want anyone to know how needful they are. Mm -hmm. So they show you their fancy stuff or they tell you their fancy things so that you'll pay attention to that because they don't want you to see how much they need the attention. Mm -hmm. You know, as someone who's fairly narcissistic, I I'm not going to be less needful in my recovery and my healing, but I do have a lot more opportunities to find healthy ways to get this big vat of needs met. You know, mm -hmm. I'll stand in front of a hundred people or 500 people and talk and I teach them stuff and they say, wow, you were great. And does it take 500 people to make me feel great? Whereas it might just take someone else, you know, a nice cup of tea. That's true. I'm that needful. <laughs> but that's okay. You know, because yeah. I don't have to go out and hurt myself or hurt other people to get those mm -hmm. big needs I have met. I just find healthy ways to get them met. Right, and you can acknowledge that your level of need is what it is. Yeah, and I, you know, and and that I still hate it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so I'm assuming uh, prodependence is in Amazon, right? Prodependence is on Amazon. If actually, if you go to, um, I'll give uh, if anyone is interested, 
Um, go to prodependence.com, www.prodependence.com. And there's a number of videos that I've done there if you want to hear me talking about what it is, what it's about, what the concept is. There's places if therapists want to do workshops or talk about growing the issue. Um, I have actually somebody, you know, a friend of mine named Kim Buck. Uh-huh. Yeah. That And uh, she is working on the workbook. She is making her PhD about working with people with prodependence versus not. And she oh, has nice. prodependence groups running right now. She says that the women in those groups are a year ahead of the women who are not in those groups. Mm-hmm. So, um, this all the stuff they just don't have to look at. They just get right to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm encouraged. Yeah, but well, we'll work here. And of course they'd be ahead because it's messages that they can resonate with and that bring out some strengths for them. And that is the word that therapists love that I'm going to say prodependence is a strength-based model. Mm-hmm. It says your love is a strength, your caring is a strength, your giving in every way is a strength, you're letting go of yourself to focus on them. A strength. Right. Yes. And, and that way, that person doesn't have to leave feeling bad about right. anything except the problem that they're dealing with. Right. I think it's so much easier and so much more useful to find what we need to embrace rather than to work on rejecting so much. And well, I was a therapist. I don't want to say, now you listen to me. <laughs> I never want to find myself saying that. I want to find myself saying, noticing how much that client feels like I understand them and how much I'm supporting them and how much I believe in them. Mm-hmm. And that's how we get effect change with people who are not addicts. You know, addicts need confrontation, containment, structure, you know, mm-hmm. but the treatment method for partners, I think is very, very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hey guys, I really appreciate you. Yeah, and, uh, it was great to talk about this. Yes. Thank you very much for coming on today. My pleasure. We will have links to Rob's work and his book in the show notes. Um, so thank you for listening today. We want to remind you at the end of another story or another, end of another episode, your story matters. And remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. You can share your story with us on our Facebook page, Healing Path Inc., or on our website, www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Remember the prayer of the perfectionist. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I'm learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to re- to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.